Let's turn, well, this is a doctrine, so you could turn to any number of approximately 100 verses that I'll refer to in this message today, but John 9, 39 is a good start. You know what you are. You're the ones Jesus talked about in Matthew eight eleven. Many shall come from the east and the west and sit down at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, enjoying the promises that are all contained in the seed, which is Christ. Those promises contained in him include you. And today, a special message. Among those who have come today, I noticed he always sneaks in surreptitiously because of his humility, no doubt, is Eric Diamond, only there's a difference this time. Our favored seminary student and soon look for his name on books as the author someday. He today is Mr. and Mrs. Eric Diamond. Come on, you guys, stand up. Let me embarrass you. Let's, let, I know we've had a lot of people praying for you. Now, you look good together. Match made in heaven, for sure. There's a few of those left. And uh, we also have, Marilyn, I'm glad you're here to take care of that man, because he's going under the knife, right? Yeah. You take, you got the best caretaker in the world there, Bruce. Yeah, it's good to see you, always. All right, and we have three mighty men here from, the. I guess you're west, aren't you, Ohio? Is that west? The, the west? Kind of like... And uh, Stan, thank you for the candy, but it's no bribe. It's not going to work on me. I'm going to still, I'm still not going to favor you anymore over other. The little note came with a whole stack of candy bars. Please favor me over others. <laughs> not going to happen. Not going to happen. It's more of a bribe from Satan than a gift from Stan, I think. But <laughs> I'm just giving the other guys, uh, you know, a little ammo. So Kelly, Kelly and Bill can kill you on the way home with kindness. Today, oh, incidentally, speaking of Eric, this is supposed to come out September 24th, but it came out today. So I, just a raising of hands, does anyone have the eagerly anticipated book by David Bentley Hart, translator of the New Testament, called That All Shall Be Saved, Heaven, Hell, and universal salvation. Does anyone have this book at all? I do. <laughs> all right. Doctrine of Justification. He gave it to me. Doctrine of Justification, part seven today. This is a doctrine that I want to develop accurately and precisely because it's probably my last visitation to it as a doctrine. And so I want it to be something that's normative for us, something that we can look to for the years to come, and something that I think will be a voice crying out in the wilderness of many other voices that are speaking about just what justification is. And I think after looking at Romans for a couple of years, we got a pretty good take on it. But we never know as we ought to know. And when we think we know, the pure desire to know is squelched and extinguished. So God is always beyond. And that's why we're teaching doing and living theology on Wednesdays. God is always beyond. And so we must always go beyond to know him. The thought I woke up with on Thursday morning and held in my heart since then is the title of today's message that is simply the last judgment is the past judgment of the cross. And I'd like you to mull that over in your hearts for a moment. The last judgment is the past judgment of the cross, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an eternal judgment, and it's the judgment for which Jesus Christ came. So John 9.31 kind of plays in already, doesn't it? For judgment I came into this world. The last judgment is the past judgment of the cross. Because of the judgment of the cross, the no one living that we've looked at from Psalm 143 to, 
that no one living in Romans 3.20 who will be justified in God's sight becomes everyone living will be and has been justified in God's sight by that process I call instaration which is the sharing by no choice of our own the death of Jesus Christ the righteous one and the faithful one this message today as well as if I have to fan it out into parts 8 9 and 10 or something like that is cross pollinating deliberate wordplay there with doing and living theology which we will hit part four on Wednesday Lord willing the no one living who will be justified in God's sight becomes everyone living who will be and in fact have been justified in God's sight by sharing by no choice of our own in the death of Jesus Christ the righteous one and the faithful one and by sharing in his resurrection justification means we are in him all flesh a very powerful phrase throughout the Bible all flesh that will not be justified in God's sight again Romans 3:20 was buried with Christ because of immersion and participation in his death and all the living that will not be justified having died with him and having been buried with him were also risen with Jesus into newness of life out from the dead by the faithful operation of God's omnipotence and when I say God I mean the triune God the father raised Jesus from the dead by the Holy Spirit and the son God the son who had authority to lay his life down took his life back again in resurrection into newness of life in a transformed corporeality a transformed bodily existence which in his ascension would become a transfigured and glorified humanity Jesus who was crucified and who died a real death which was evinced by the issue of blood and water from his side as John 19:34 to 35 says John wanted to almost close the book there because he saw that the death of Jesus Christ was a reality by the issue of blood and water from his side also his real death was testified by his burial for he was buried according to the scriptures in Isaiah 53 9 1 Corinthians 15 4 he arose from the dead and he was seen and heard and touched by Mary of Magdala he was seen and heard by Kepha also known as Peter by the Apostles by James by over 500 witnesses at one time and by Paul he was seen and he was heard by Cleopas and another slow to believe disciple on the road to Emmaus seven miles out from Jerusalem in Luke 24 13 to 32 he was seen and heard by the eleven and others unnamed Luke 24 36 where he announced peace be to you again this cross-pollinates with doing and living theology our other series Jesus made this post-resurrection greeting also not only in Luke 24 36 John 20 19 John 20 21 
John 20, 26. And as we've seen in our other series, Psalm 85, 8 says, I will hear what Yahweh, the Lord, will speak, for he will speak peace to his people. Yahweh, Yeshua, Jesus, raised from the dead, says peace to his people. Jesus speaks peace to his disciples, but the significance of that is often missed. For when he said peace to his disciples, he was saying peace to the representatives of all humankind in all time. Therefore, having been justified by faithfulness, that's his, Messiah's, we have peace with God. So the one who justified all of us by his faithfulness in his death and was raised from the dead for our resurrection, of course he says, peace to you. He is Yahweh, Yeshua. Jesus had been delivered up to take away the offenses of all of humanity, and he was resurrected for our justification. So it's powerfully significant that when he greeted the selected witnesses of his resurrection, that he would say peace to them. I will hear what Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, will speak. Because the one word speech that he makes to all of humankind is peace to you. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not just the 12, the world. Not just Israel, the world of all the nations. Peace to you. All the Old Testament is the declaration of peace from Yahweh to redeemed humanity in forecast. All the New Testament is the declaration of peace from God to all of humanity in fulfillment and in reality. Because God only said one word to us. God spoke in these last days by his son. The one word God says to us is Jesus. And in Ephesians 2.14, Jesus is our peace. Peace. God says to those who were once his avowed enemies. For while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us and reconciled us. Who's us? <laughs> well, that's everybody. Yahweh Yeshua, risen from the dead. His resurrection spells life-giving Life, capital L-I-F-E, life-giving justification for all of humanity. Again, Romans 4.25 and 5.18. It is also of momentous importance that this greeting, peace to you, was made to the apostles whom Jesus had promised in the regeneration, palingenesia, the new genesis, which is the same as apokatastasis, the restoration of all things, which is the same as anakephaliosis, which is the summation of all things in Christ Jesus, which is the same as the universal reconciliation of Colossians 1.20, Ephesians 1.10, when God the Father fills up his house. Luke 14.23. When Jesus said, Peace to you. He said it to those whom he said would judge the 12 tribes of Israel from 12 thrones in the regeneration. That's not just the individual regeneration. That's the universal regeneration, the making new of all things for eternal life. As he said before, trees with eternal life, mountains with eternal life, rivers with eternal life, animals with eternal life. Humans with eternal life. I make all things new. I make all things new. And it is done. We're talking about Operation Epsilon here. Talking about seeing as God sees. The regeneration then is a word for the universal new genesis. 
In other words, by speaking peace to his apostles, a select few, Jesus was announcing peace to all of the tribes of Israel whom they represented and to all of humanity to whom the 12 represented. Go into all the nations, all the nations. That the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel are representative of all of humankind or all the nations is made dramatic in the vision of the new Jerusalem whose 12 foundations bear the inscribed names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Revelation 21.12. Just as the 12 gates of the city, as Phil said Thursday night, they're always open, never shut down. The 12 gates of the city, three on each of the four sides, always wide open to receive the nations. And it says kings will bring their glory into it. Why? Because the kings too will be glorified. Because all whom God justifies, he glorifies. And he justifies all the sons of Adam. So he glorifies all the sons of Adam. As many as he justified, Romans 5.18, everybody, he glorifies. Just put 5.18 of Romans together with 8.30 and think about it a little bit. Then match it up with Isaiah 45.25. Which we may have time to do today. And if not, there's going to be a part 8 to this doctrine. The 12 foundations bear the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The 12 gates open wide to receive the nations have the inscribed names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Revelation 21, 12 and 14 and 24 to 25. All of Israel is represented in this glorious vision that John brings forth. All of Israel is saved, Romans eleven twenty six within the horizon of the salvation of all of the nations and within the wider horizon of the redemption and the glorification, not just redemption, but glorification of all of creation as a new creation for eternal life. God never shows us his total glorious beauty until he shows it unfurled throughout all of his creation and all of time. And I pray you and I have a foreview of that today. When Jesus as Yahweh spoke peace to his chosen disciples and to select witnesses. Somebody says, well, Judas is out of the picture, isn't he? Who said that? Who said? I've chosen 12. And one of you is a diabolos. Does that mean Judas isn't counted everybody looks for the is it James is it Paul maybe it's just Judas God is faithful even if we're faithless that's just something to think about I'm not making a dogmatic statement I wouldn't dare to when Jesus as Yahweh Yahweh Yeshua spoke peace to his chosen disciples He was still speaking only that which his father speaks. When I'm lifted up, crucifixion, then you will know that I am, that I do nothing on my own. And as I hear, I speak. So when he says peace, he's saying what the father is saying to the whole of the human race, peace. As the son of God spoke peace, God the Father was speaking Jesus, who is our peace, Ephesians 2.14. Not just to those 12, not just to those few. And no doubt that's how he opened his sermon to the 500, but to the whole of humanity that they represented. As Jesus spoke, he breathed the Spirit. As he breathed, he breathed the Spirit in John 20.21. His words 
as the life-giving spirit, for that's what he is, 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Our spirit, his words, my words, he says, our spirit, and they are life, capital L, John six sixty three. So on the one hand, Jesus is the word that the Father eternally spoke. On the other hand, peace is the word that Jesus speaks. As the Father says, eternally, as the Father says, eternally, Jesus, this is my son, Jesus. As the Father says, eternally, Jesus, he says, eternally, peace to all the human race because of the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the creation, meaning from before. In the eternity that God is, the redemption of all creation preceded the creation of creation and is only manifest at the end of history. The last judgment is the past judgment of the cross, but the past judgment of the cross is God's eternal judgment on sinners and eternal judgment of acquittal on sin and eternal judgment of destruction on you and me an eternal pronouncement of peace. What applies to me applies to all when we have a conversion in our hearts that turn us from our curvature in ourselves, seeing only the redemption in light of ourselves or in the light of our own to seeing the redemption for all of humanity. It changes us completely. It actually opens the door for us to love all humankind in first Thessalonians three twelve with the love of God. And that's being imitators of God, the God who is love cross pollination with DLT doing and living theology. God has made Jesus to be righteousness for us and righteousness there means justification. God has made Jesus to be justification for us. And because he did, we're justified by his faithfulness. God says peace. Therefore, being justified by faithfulness, Messiah's to the extent of death, we have peace with God. Only makes sense that he would rise from the dead and say, peace. And so, God made Jesus to be justification for us and sanctification, holiness, and the absolute guarantee of our bodily redemption. 1 Corinthians one thirty. And God has made Jesus to be peace for us all. God justified all of humanity by the blood of his son. That's what Romans says, 5.9. And by so doing, he removed us all by infinity, a distance of infinity from the possibility of wrath. Romans 5.9, which shouts that we are justified by Jesus' blood is followed immediately by 5, 9, and 10, which says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God and made his friends through his son's death, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Not only that, we also boast. Where is boasting? It's right here. We boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received that reconciliation. And no wonder Romans 5.1, having been justified by the faithfulness of Messiah unto death, followed by his resurrection, 5.1 is attached to 4.25. We have peace with God, goes right into 5.2 that says we boast in the hope of the glory of God, meaning because we're justified, We're also glorified, so we certainly have the right to boast and brag and exult 
in our future to us, but present to God, glorification. Because as many as he justified, he glorified. The last judgment is the past judgment of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. To the man born blind whom he gave sight, Jesus said, it's for a judgment that I've come into this world. The result of that judgment is those who think they see will be struck blind by it. Those who think God has elected a few for salvation and a lot for damnation. They think they see this doctrine, this judgment will strike them blind for a little while. Just like Paul, it'll only be for a few days. Then he'll open their eyes. And those that are blind, like us, to telestai phalanx, broken, humiliated, humbled, sure we can't justify ourselves, poor in spirit, meek and teachable, with a pure desire to know, our eyes are opened. But don't think they're opened all the way yet. Don't drop the pure desire to know, because you'll stay on a plateau halfway up the mountain. And the plateau won't even be big enough for you to pitch a tent on. So let's keep moving. As long as I'm alive, let's keep moving. And then after I'm gone... I hope my voice rings in your ears and I hope those who take over and who speak in my final absence and who will take this message further and deeper and wider and make it more powerful, you'll hear, keep moving. Until he comes, keep moving. At the universal appearance of Jesus... Sadly, to the full preterists, it's still future to us. It's called the parousia. In 1 Corinthians 15.23, in 1 Thessalonians 2.9, in 3.13, in 4.15, in 5.23, in 2 Thessalonians 2.1, but you knew that already, and also 1 John 2.28. It's also known as the eager wait, eagerly awaited and... Intensely anticipated epiphany, epiphania, as it's called. Well, it's called that in Titus 2.13. We await with tiptoe anticipation the epiphany of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Also, that word epiphany is found in 1 Timothy 6.14 and in 2 Timothy 4.8. At that epiphany, at that parousia, every eye will see the one who was pierced in his crucifixion. Revelation 1.7, which is rooted in Daniel 7.13 and 14, which is also rooted in the prophetic scripture, Zechariah 12.10. All flesh at that moment shall experience the salvation of God. Isaiah 40 and verse 5 Cited strategically in Luke 3 6. Every knee will gladly genuflect, not under coercion. Every tongue will praise Yahweh, whose name is Yeshua. For at the mention of the name Yeshua, every knee will bow and every tongue will acknowledge and publicly shout out, Yahweh is Yeshua. Yahweh is Jesus. And that'll be to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Romans 14, 11. Confer with Isaiah 45, 23, where that quote is first made. And we're going to see that again shortly. Isaiah 45, 23. At the universal revelation, as 1 Peter 1, 7 calls it, of Yahweh in Jesus, the past judgment of the cross will be gloriously and obviously manifested to be the last judgment of God on all of humankind 
and all of creation. This is the essence of the word to die. It is finished. Out of the past judgment of the cross, God's eternal judgment. Notice I'm saying past judgment, but I'm also saying even more significantly, eternal judgment. Comes the sentence of universal acquittal on all who sinned and the glorification of all whom God predestined to conformity with his son. Those whom God predestined and foreknew in Christ. And he makes those equal in their meaning in Romans eight twenty nine. Those whom he predestined to conformity with his son are obviously those God, whom God foreknew as being in his son. And God foreknew all humanity in his son, a far more significant fact than all humanity in Adam. For those of you that want judgment to be retributive and punitive and destructive, God judged eternally the man who sins, the woman who sins, the sons of Adam who sin in the cross of Christ. And he judged sin eternally. And he defeated death eternally. And the same sons of Adam, once children of wrath and dead in sins, he makes alive in Christ Jesus. The whole message after that is be who you are. Be who you are. That's what Ephesians says. After telling you what you've had done to you in the eternal judgment of the cross and who you've been made to be, he says, now be that. Just like he says, you've been reconciled to God, so be reconciled. Be what you are, reconciled. Line up to what you have become. Reconciled to God as God's friend. For those who think that this does not involve any post-salvation, holiness, or a life that honors God, you are really dead wrong. And that's why we need another, I just just dawned on me, we need another part to this doctrine. Because justification is not only an eternal pronouncement, but it's an ongoing process in the justified in this life. And justification there is one with, not separate from, Sanctification. So that's coming up. That'll be the last straw, the last argument that we'll pin down. The word epiphany has emphasis on not just the second coming, as we call it. This is a misnomer. It's not, we shouldn't even look at Jesus Christ's first and second coming. There is one epiphany that has two parts. One that culminated in his resurrection and ascension to the Father after his crucifixion. Another where he manifests himself, not to 500, not only to Mary of Magdala, not only to James or Paul or Cleopas and the other dimwit on the road to Emmaus and the dimwit known as yours truly, not only to select witnesses, but to all of humanity whom he selected to be in Christ. Now, I'm saying this not only in terms of, I haven't chosen the words only, but I've actually chosen the style of proclaiming this so that eyes that are closed will be opened and eyes that think they see will be challenged with the indictment that maybe you don't see as you thought you could see. And I'm not speaking mainly to people in this room, but people that are looking at these messages with a view to undoing them, they look at it with the view of discrediting them. You're welcome to do that. Come on ahead. So then, the word epiphany has emphasis on his resurrection as witnessed by the 12 and others, according to 2 Timothy 1.10, because by his resurrection, in that epiphany, he made life and immortality, he brought it to light in his resurrection. He brought it to light to a few, 
But in the second half of his epiphany, future, he makes it known to all. And you experience it because you'll have it too. For when he comes, he issues us a body of glory like his own. And he does it by the same power that he subjects everything to himself. And therefore, everything is brought under his domain. A domain of grace and not tyranny. A domain of liberation and not oppression. So then, at the universal revelation of Jesus, the second part of his epiphany, all will know and all will experience. So out of the past judgment of the cross comes the sentence of universal acquittal on all who sinned and the glorification of all whom God predestined to conformity with his son. Those he predestined, also known as foreknew, Romans 8, 29, as in Christ, he called. And called there means he called them into existence as a new creation. As many as he called, he justified. So justification has something linked up with a new creation. In fact, justification in one sense is a new creation. So we could say that the one epiphany of Jesus occurs in two parts. So I'll say it again. At the universal revelation of Yahweh in Jesus, Yahweh as Jesus also, the past judgment of the cross will be gloriously and obviously manifested to be the last judgment of God on all of humankind, on all of creation, a judgment by which all of humanity within the horizon of all of creation is seen to have been justified and glorified in the just one, Jesus, who is also called the Lord of glory. The one who is justified was also glorified. That's Jesus. The just one who died, the just one for the unjust, is the Lord of glory. If the rulers of this age had ever known the result of crucifying him, they never would have done it because it's their undoing and it's their transformation By the cross, the transformation of evil into the ultimate good, into the supreme good. The resurrected Jesus, whom God announced as our peace, as Jesus said peace, the Father was saying, Jesus is your peace. He is the word that the Father spoke eternally. He didn't come here to speak, but to be spoken. That's why he's called the word. But when the word speaks, It's the words of his father that he speaks. So when he says peace, the father says, Jesus is your peace. And he says it to all of humankind. There are two times when God sees all of human, three times. He sees all of humankind at one glance through all of humanity, all of history simultaneously. Once is recorded in Psalm 14, one to three. And that's also recorded in Psalm 53, one to three. He surveys all the Beni Adam, the children of Adam. And he says, all at once and all together, they have gone aside. There is none that does righteousness. There's none that is righteous. There's none that understands, not even one. He sees all of humanity simultaneously. So the one who is righteous has to come into this world from outside it, and he has the one who shall come, the Messiah. He has the Son of Man who didn't, ascend to heaven until he first descended and was crucified and hung on a cross like Moses hung the serpent on a pole in the wilderness so that everyone who looked is saved. And guess what? Everyone will look. (laughs) Look unto me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved. Every eye will look. And so every person with eyes will be saved. The message that I find of salvation for all is far more deep and obvious 
and important than I've read about it. It's far more real than we can imagine. It makes us more and more impatient to see him. Less and less patient with this world, but more and more in need of the fruit of the spirit called patience for this world, for life in this world. Hang in there. You're living as long as God will have you here. That's good news for some. Bad news for others who can't wait. I can't wait, but I got to wait, so I need patience, and God will shed it out in my heart, pour it out. Shed it forth. The second time all of humanity was present in all of its times in God's sight was at the cross. When Christ died, so did all. If one died, for all, then all died. God saw all the humanity together in one place in the crucified Christ. All who are living can't be justified, so all died. In him to be justified. The same all flesh that can never be justified while living, the same all flesh died and comes forth in a life that's justified. Our justification is our instauration, it is our, without any choice of our own, our identification with and association with Christ in his death. Now, you might want to willingly get ritually baptized to celebrate that, or you might not. But either way, beyond your choice, you've been baptized and immersed into Christ's death. And you will partake in the future in his bodily glory. Now, there'll be another time when all of humanity will be contemporaneous and living all together. I said it before, Vikings and Zulus, Italians and Polish people, Germans and Jews, simultaneous, all through history, all together. How can that happen? Only one way, resurrection. What choice did you have in the matter? Time is coming and it now is when those who hear the voice of the son of God will live. What choice do the dead have? (laughs) Lazarus come forth. He's dead now. Dead Lazarus said, I will if I want to. You mean I can come forth if I believe? If I confess, if I call on you, if I'm baptized, just come out, out of death into life. So why do the sheep hear his voice and follow him? The sheep are simply part of the dead who will hear his voice, part of the whole of humanity that will hear his voice. The sheep are those who hear it now. And follow him in resurrection now and begin to experience the life of the resurrection in the present. That's the sheep. The sheep are the dead who hear his voice and come forth now in this life. But all the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and come out. Lazarus comes out of his tomb. Saul of Tarsus comes out of his position in death, in sins. While we were dead in sins and children of wrath. The special child of wrath that Paul was was a child that thought he was justified by the works of the law, and the law only works wrath in people. It made him angry about everybody else. Christians who think that they're elect for some reason of their own are mad about everybody else, angry about everybody else, preaching against everybody else instead of proclaiming the gospel of the mystery, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ according to the mystery of God, the apocalypse of God's mystery to include all of creation in his redemptive act. Now, 
So the same will occur in the telos in the end when God will be all in all. All of humanity and all of its times contemporaneous. That's going to be a lot of fun. Meeting people, historical figures. Good ones and bad ones. All contemporaneous. All at the same time. All in resurrected bodies waiting for the final glorification of their bodies. That's going to be offensive to some people who thought they were good. What's he doing here? What's she doing here? What? I saw Judas and Jezebel, both. How did they get here? Well, how did you get there? Dead in sins, the voice of the Son of God spoke, and you came forth from death. What makes you different from Jezebel or Judas? This word of the cross, and here's the rub. This word of the cross is foolishness to those who think they see and assume that they know. They're called the perishing. The perishing are those who think they see when they're blind and think they know when they don't know. And they're living in the Adamic ontology that was judged eternally on the cross. So they're perishing. They're spinning their wheels stuck in the present moment of this evil age that's transient and passing. So they idolize either marriage or family or themselves or their country. They idolize something and they focus on it entirely so they can find some kind of security and some kind of association, some kind of a gender association, something they got to glorify, something they've got to idolize. That's perishing. God is interested in the family for one reason only. How does the family represent the fellowship of divine and human persons that is in Christ? Otherwise, he's not as interested in family as you think he is. He's not focused on the family. He's focused on this is my son. And Jesus said, you want to know who my family is? I'll tell you who my family is. Those who hear the word of God and keep it. And that's including this message. I know where my family is. I know who they are. Now. This message is also sight to the blind. Until Jesus makes his universal appearance. The judgment for which he came into the world. causes the religiously and the piously self-assured to be blind. And those who are broken and humbled and poor in spirit and teachable to see. I said to Keith, my dear friend who often plays piano and he likes to do the Snoopy thing on Christmas. He said, I always say, it's good to see you. And he always says, it's good to see you too. And he really does see me. Last week he said, are you wearing a dark suit? I said, how did you know? And he said, because preachers always wear dark suits. And he remembered, he remembers when, he, when he was able to see. And he said, my eyes now are artificial. They, I, they're, not, they're not even real eyes. And I said, blessed are your eyes. For they see. They see things that prophets and kings wanted to see in the Old Testament. Never saw So, Keith, if you're in the overflow, blessed are your eyes. Those who have eyes that can see with 20-20 vision would beg to have your eyes if they knew what they saw, if they know what they see. Until Jesus comes, some of those who have been reconciled to God, everybody has, Some of those that have been reconciled to God will resist the message of that reconciliation. That's why Paul said to the Corinthians, you've been reconciled, now be reconciled. Be who you are. Don't live any longer as enemies of God. You're reconciled. Others will respond to it and reveal that they are his sheep. Until he comes, there will be those who are stubbornly clinging to the vision of a vindictive God. Who consigns millions. I can't even fathom this God anymore. 
He consigns millions to a Christless eternity. Millions to a God-forsaken eternity. Millions who Paul said are already without hope. That means they're desperate. Without God, that means they're without God's comforting presence. And without Christ in this world, God, you know what he's going to do for them? I'm going to just eternalize your misery after you're dead. People cling to the image of that God. To hell with that God. He's not the God of the Bible. You see, somebody's got to emphasize this in a way that can't be put in a book or put in a poem or put in a prose or put in a doctrine. Somebody's got to say it in a way that makes it very clear. I always like to think of myself as the dirty Harry of preachers. (laughs) No, I'm not really. I'm a very gentle person. Now, you got that punk? Now, others, and this is almost even more pathetic in one way. Others will stick to the image of a God who really wants to save all humanity, but he's impotent to do so because some do not choose to be saved. Sorry, can't save you. Off to the blast furnace with you forever and ever and ever, and it's never going to help you in eternity either. Go to hell. I tried to help you. That's even more pathetic. Thank God, others will receive the deep conversion by which they see God as the universal dispenser of grace and giver of peace and extender of mercy and glory. Until he comes, there will be those who obstinately adhere to their atheism, their political ideologies that they pick up by contagion with others who are angry and bitter and vicious and look at the rulers of the land as those who have robbed them of their happiness, which is what? I don't know. It'll happen the next time there's an election, and the next time there's an election, and the next time there's an election. People put all their happiness in who's going to be in the White House. And therefore, if the one that's not in the White House is the one they want in the White House, they are very, very angered and embittered. And look at that person in the White House as the one who removed their happiness altogether because all their happiness is tied up in who they wanted there. And I'm not just talking about this time. I've seen it. Now I've seen it. I've been alive for four or five elections. And people who are all tied up ideology instead of theology get all kinds of bitter. And then you ask them to explain why. And they really can't unless they were honest and say, because all my happiness was all tied up and I wanted him or her to be in the White House, and they're not in the White House, so all my happiness is gone, so I hate everybody, especially the scapegoat. It's a, this is the most scapegoat-ridden culture I've ever seen. And I thank God for the balance Tony's bringing on climate change. Because people say, climate change is a problem. And you go, can you explain that? And they go, the science is in. Right. Okay. What science? Well, I don't know, but I know it's in. Not only that, it's settled. So you don't, what about that verse that says the earth is founded forever and God's going to, you know. Oh, well, that's the Bible. We're too educated to believe in the Bible. Here comes the preacher. Now let's bring back the teacher. Until he comes, there will be those who obstinately adhere to their political ideologies, their petty, pious theologies, rooted in idolatry and curvature in ad se, curvature into self. Until he comes, as Revelation even says, many will, the wicked will remain wicked. Let the wicked remain wicked. Let them do wickedly. And the righteous, others will be practically sanctified and grow in sanctifying grace. But when he comes, everybody will experience his uncontingent and unconditional saving mercy and grace, which happened to be unleashed at the Christ event. 
the cross of Christ. So, this is the final gear today. The resurrected Jesus is the beginning of the new creation of God. He said it himself. I am the beginning of the creation of God. That means the new creation, Revelation 3.14. He is the firstborn from the dead. Revelation 1.5, Colossians 1.18. He is the firstborn, prototokos, of all creation. Colossians 1.15. The firstborn of a family of innumerable siblings. Romans 8.29, Hebrews 2.10-13. He brings many sons into glory, and that's all the human race, because he has drunk the cup of death for all of humanity. By the grace of God. By the grace of God, he tested, tasted, or drank the cup of. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass by me. Didn't pass by him, and he drank it. It was the cup in which he tasted death for all of humanity. Not just death physically. Infinitely more than that. The death which is the final result of sin and its wages for all. Because he did, all humanity, by the grace of God, he brings all humanity into the glory of God. Jesus stands in the sight of God as the absolute guarantee of the resurrection from the dead into death-conquering life of all of humanity in all of its times. This is the way God the Father fills up his house. Luke 14, 23, the master of the house says, They declined my invitation. Oh, they did? Then go out into the highways and compel them to come in. Go into the alleyways and the gutters. Bring them in. Bring them in until my house is full. That's what Ephesians 1.10 says. In the dispensation or the household management of God, in the fullness of times, everyone gets summed up in Christ, even those that decline the invitation. It's not up. Who do you think you are? I declined the invitation, so I won't be there. I heard some stupid song lyric when St. Peter calls my, will never call my name. You idiot. It's not St. Peter anyways. My sheep hear my voice. You'll hear the voice of the Son of God, and you'll live, and you'll like it. Now, this is the way the son is given a big family. God's will is for his son. This is my son. I want him to have a big family. Therefore, he is the firstborn of many brethren, many siblings. Many means all. The human race. Mark 10.45, 1 Timothy 2.6, in case you forgot. Justification then, and we'll have to move into other parts. I can see it already. Justification is an act of the triune God. Cross-pollinating with doing and living theology. The three persons of the Godhead act in concert to set completely right what went wrong universally. I'll say that again. The three persons of the triune Godhead act in concert to set completely right what went wrong in the universe at large and in humanity in general. God's promise is the making new of all things, and he says it is done. We're talking about what God sees. Revelation 21.6. Done, not in our sight, done in God's sight to be manifested to all flesh In Jesus' universal appearing and epiphany. So justification is an indispensable component of the new creation of all things for eternal life. In fact, one could say, these are all things we'll have to fan out in the future. I'll just introduce them. One could say that the result of justification is a new creation. So saying that no flesh alive will be justified in his sight is saying the old creation will not be justified in his sight. But the old creation was crucified with Christ and the new creation came up with Christ and when Christ died, all died. So when Christ rose justified, 
A new creation came forth of all humankind, justified in him and glorified in God's sight, yet to be manifested. There's a difference between Jesus raised from the dead where he appeared like a gardener or he appeared like a stranger or he appeared like some other person. And there's a difference between him then ascending to heaven where he receives the transfiguration and the glorification of his humanity, which would stun you if you saw it. You'd fall flat, you'd die. So when we see him, we shall be like him, all glorious. As many as God justified, he glorified. He justified all when Christ died and rose from the dead for our justification. So glorification is a done deal in God's eyes, and it's our future. Therefore, being justified by Christ's faithfulness, we boast in the hope of what? The glory of God. Our glorification in God. Our transfiguration in God. So great is this future new creation to us that we cannot, eye has not seen it, ear has not heard about it, it's never even entered the imaginings of even poets like Dickinson and poets like Tennyson and poets like Wordsworth who were remarkable poets and visionaries. But they haven't even touched the transcendency of this new creation. Glorification. Well, I'll just give you a hint. Let's just go to Romans 8 in closing. Romans 8, 29 in closing. I'm going to have to fan these out. It's going to be justification parts 8 at least, possibly 8 and 9, probably 8, 9, and 10. All of this is just the unfurling of the robe of the high, highest God in our midst, the beauty of God being revealed in our midst. Romans 8, 29 to 30 from our translation, which we just completed together. Those whom God foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that Jesus would have a big family. That's the sense of this. Being the firstborn among many siblings. Moreover, those whom he predestined for this conformity, he also called into existence as a new creation. That I get from Romans 4.17. Calls doesn't just mean come over here. It means I'm calling you into existence as a new creation. And those he called into existence as a new creation, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is all a done deal from God's perspective. He justified all, and he glorified all whom he justified. That's only going to be manifested. You just won't be able to get over it. For the first time, will actually say, I can't get over myself. And it will be all right, because you'll be in the image of Christ. One more, Isaiah 45. i got to fan these out in the weeks to come. You know, the word of God is so urgent that a preacher might be justified in preaching for six hours. It's that urgent right now. It's that urgent right now. It's even more urgent than A.B. becoming a patriot. I'll tell you, more important than A.B. is A and Z, the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus Christ. Rome, Isaiah 45, 22. Look at, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The word that goes forth from my mouth is dikaiosune, righteousness. Saving action for all is what it means. Every knee will bow to me. Who says this? God. And there's no other. He swears by himself. Every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. It will be said to me. He says peace to us. What do we say back to him? Only in Yahweh is righteousness. Only in Yahweh is Righteousness only in Jesus is justification. That's what he, that's what's being said here. What is our salvation? It's us being in Jesus. Will you say, when did I start being in Jesus when he died? 
where when one died for all, all died in him. You were with Jesus when he died. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Yeah, I was. I was crucified with my Lord. Salvation is being in him. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all will be made alive. This justification, this word goes so far beyond the so-called universalists who still talk about hell. Well, we, we believe in hell and it has a purpose, but it's not forever. It's just for a few ages when people get the hell paddled out of them by God until they finally wake up. Just a few ages. It's eventual out there. It's a, you know what that's called? Purgatory. And even those Catholic theologians who talked about purgatory recognized that the only purgatory is the fire of God's love that burns off all purification, not over a period of ages, but in an instant at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So that's why I don't say I'm a universalist lightly, because a lot of universalists believe that people are eventually going to eventually believe in Jesus after some of them are going to take hundreds and hundreds of years. Some of them are going to take thousands of years to finally be convinced. I, I can't tell you how exercised I am by this. I'm, I am fervent. I am overflowing with this message. I'm burning up inside. It's a furnace inside me. I can't, I can't stop. I can't stay back. So, verse 24, it will be said to me, Yahweh says, only in Yahweh is righteousness. And what else? Glory. Righteousness and glory, justification and glorification, all together. And all that separate themselves shall be ashamed. For how long? For ages and ages. No, for a minute. Wow. By the Lord, look at, by the Lord, they shall be justified. Who? Even the ones that are ashamed for a second or two. And all of the offspring of the sons of Israel, pantosperma, shall be glorified in God. So that's the Septuagint translation. Those who are ashamed are those whom the Lord will justify and glorify. But those who believe, they're not ashamed. We're not ashamed of this message. And so, by either translation, whether you go by the, and we'll look at this a little closer, the Septuagint or the Hebrew text, in the Hebrew text it says, Israel justified in Yahweh and glorified in God. It says the same thing. All Israel, which represents all of mankind, is not only justified in Yahweh, but they're glorified in God. They're justified by being in Jesus. They're glorified by being in Christ in God. We who are justified have the right, and you don't have the right to live in fear anymore. You have the right to boast in your future glorification to you because what's future to you is present to God and was present in the resurrected Christ. Paul makes... All the seeds of the son of Israel, all the seed of the sons of Israel, to be one with all the sons of Adam. The divine acts of justification and glorification are united in the saving act, which is God's righteousness. The last judgment is the past justifying judgment of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Amen. Over and out.